0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. This Sunday finishes the series that we've been going through, talking about the different metaphors or analogies that the New Testament uses of the church. Next week, Lord willing, we will start going through the Gospel of John together. I look forward to that. One last Sunday. And really, it's been a whole summer. It's been a whole summer series of the church, from Eric in June and then through July and August, and now the first week of September, we've been talking about the church. Who is the church? What does the church do? What does the church look like? What does it mean to be the church? So I hope you've been encouraged by this. I hope that you will be encouraged again by God's Word today. Would you stand with me as I read here Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. This morning we're going to focus particularly on verses 20, 21, and 22. But let's begin. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to this church, your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. We don't often talk too much about the time in between the Testaments. So, in between the Old Testament and in between the New Testament, there is this period of time, often referred to as the intertestamental period. So that's the time in between the Testament, about 400 years. 400 years of silence when God's Word concerning the Old Testament had ceased and before the time of God's Word in the New Testament had begun. Even though there is no divinely inspired revelation during this period, it does not mean that nothing happened. In fact, one ominous but historical event that happened to the Jewish people occurred during these days, and it was done, this ominous event, was done by a man named Antiochus IV. He became the great supervillain, if you will, of the intertestamental period and specifically the Jewish people. Until this time the Jewish people had been more or less on the periphery of Alexander the Great's empire. Going unnoticed, they still were able to practice their Jewish customs. They were able to speak the Hebrew language. But this was unacceptable unacceptable to Antiochus IV. He wanted to further Hellenize, that is, he wanted to make them more Greek. They weren't Greek enough, so he wanted to make the Jewish people more Greek. Not only did he want them to speak Greek, he also wanted to bring back Greek mythology, Greek pagan gods into their worship so that they worship these Greek gods. Antiochus IV showed his dedication to this campaign by giving himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God Manifest. Meaning, Antiochus was setting himself up as Zeus incarnate. He was saying to the Jewish people and to everyone, I am Zeus incarnate. You want to see what Zeus looks like? Look at me. Those under his rule, however, came to give him a different name, a nickname, a nickname, if you will, Antiochus Epimenes. You'll hear the close resemblance. Epimenes, which means madman he displayed this madman like qualities as he overthrew Jerusalem, not only did he destroy what were at their time their Bibles their Old Testaments he also stripped the temple of all of its furnishings, he removed all of the precious metals and jewels that ordained the temple, he emptied the treasury storehouses of the temple and last of all he set up a pagan altar on the altar of God where he sacrificed a pig. Thereby, he desecrated the temple and the altar of God in a most abominable fashion. The temple, the place where God's presence dwelt among his people, the place where the worship of God took place, the locale where people would go in order to be close to God, The place where atonement was made for the people's sins, the place of daily sacrifice and prayers were made to God, had been violated and destroyed in the most profane way imaginable in the Jewish mind. In the Jewish mind, the pig was an unclean animal. You weren't allowed to eat it, you weren't allowed to touch it, you were to stay as far away as you could from it, but here was Antiochus Epimenes, this madman, sacrificing a pig on the very altar of God. What was clean, pure, holy was made unclean, impure, and odious. The holiest, most sacred space had been defiled. It was blasphemous, outrageous, and degrading. What would have to take place today For you to sympathize with what the Jews went through all of those years ago. When their temple was desecrated. What would be so scandalous that it would cause us to mourn, despair, and completely turn our lives upside down? The temple for them was a sacred place. Do we have any such sacred place? Do we even have a category for this in our mind? That we would call something sacred? Throughout the Bible runs the theme of the temple. From the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle erected in the wilderness, to the temple built by Solomon, to Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, in John 2, verse 19. There Jesus relocated the fulfillment of the temple in his own person, but throughout the Bible we see this theme of the temple. We no longer go to a temple to worship. You can still find, though, temples in this world, temples where people will go to worship in their own religious practices and their own religious ways. The temple of Jesus' day was destroyed in AD 70 never to be rebuilt where is it that God will be worshiped where is it that God will dwell among his people now where is God's building Paul tells us that God's building is now the church we are God's building So what does it mean for us to be God's building, and what does this truth dictate to us as we seek to be Christ's church? Well, let's look here then at these verses this morning. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful for you, but number one, as God's building, we are built on the foundation of sound doctrine. As God's building, we are built on the foundation of sound doctrine. Crucial to any structure that is built is the foundation. A faulty foundation will result in a faulty structure. A building is only as good as its foundation. So if the church is God's building, built by God, he is going to build it well, and he is going to build it with a good and a solid foundation. What is the foundation that we are built upon? Notice... We're not talking about an external building. This is a different kind of building. It's a spiritual building. That does not mean that it's fake. It's a real building, but not an external structure like this building. This is evident because the foundation of this building is not cement or cinder blocks or stones. The foundation is people. Paul says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, let's take these in turn. The apostles were those who were handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They saw his miracles. They listened to his teachings. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Included with the twelve apostles were Paul and later James, the brother of Jesus, It's these apostles who were the early leaders and teachers of the church. So these are the apostles, but Paul also says, and the prophets. Prophets are also listed. Who are these prophets? So let's think about this, because there are a few different opinions about who these prophets are. Some say this is a description of the apostles, so... They think that Paul is saying built on the foundation of the apostle prophets or apostle hyphenated prophet. So the apostles are the prophets in a sense. The two are made up into one office. The problem is that the text language doesn't support this. So it's not apostle prophets like there's a slash or a hyphen there. These are two distinct groups of people. Apostles and prophets. Okay, so a pro, uh, the prophets aren't descriptive, then, of the apostles, who are these prophets. Well, another option could be these are the Old Testament prophets. Just as the, te- the teaching of the New Testament is based on the apostles, so the teaching of the Old Testament is based mostly on the teaching of the prophets. So it could be the Old Testament prophets. Or the third choice is that these are New Testament prophets, prophets in the time of the early church that were given divine revelation from God to help teach and instruct the church in its inception, in these early days. This last option is the most likely. Why is that? Well, first, notice here the word apostles comes first. If it was Old Testament prophets, it probably would be the other way around. It would say, built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. But it doesn't say that. It says apostles and prophets. Since they are listed second, it's most likely not the Old Testament prophets. But second, if you just look down in your Bible there a little bit, and you come to verse 5 in chapter 3, it reads this, which was... Not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to who? To His holy apostles and prophets by the, Spirit of, by the Spirit. There, the same phrase, apostles and prophets. And notice there that Paul is using that same phrase, and it seems even more certain that these are prophets of the New Testament times, because he's saying, not in other generations as in the, as in the past, it's it's Now. One other reason, if you go further into Ephesians chapter 4, you see this list for verse 11. Gifts that were given to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. There again, it seems that those prophets are New Testament prophets given as a gift to the church to build up the church. So most likely these are New Testament prophets given divine revelation from God to build up the church in these early days of the church's inception. So what does it mean for us to be built upon these people? It means that we are built upon their teaching. Teaching that has come to us through divine revelation, that is the inspired and infallible and inerrant word of God. That is the New Testament. So these apostles and these prophets are saying and teaching the church exactly what the New Testament says to us today. And notice, these are not only those who teach the teachings of Christ. They actually teach Christ himself their ministry of teaching and proclamation was centered on Christ. When they herald what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, they uphold the church and they give the church life. So these teachings that were coming through the apostles and the prophets were giving the church life. They were infusing life in the people because they were giving them the very word of God. They are those who first proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are built on the authoritative and normative teaching that came through this divine revelation to the apostles and the prophets which now is solidified in the New Testament what is the great unshakable foundation of the church it's nothing less than the sound doctrine of the New Testament which heralds the God-breathed word Highlighting the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That foundation of the church is the foundation of all eternal hope. Our stability is not found in religious rites or spiritual actions or even good deeds. Our stability is found in the truth of God's word. That is our foundation. Sound doctrine. Right teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. That's how we are formed. We are formed by the Word of God. How is it that we have come into existence as Christians through the Word of God? That's how it always happens. And so... Our very lives depend upon this word of sound doctrine. Number two, as God's building, we are built on the cornerstone of our Savior. As God's building, we are built on the cornerstone of our Savior. So we move from this general foundation, the building, this this foundation that we are built upon of the apostles and prophets, to a specific piece of the foundation. So notice how Paul is going from very general to now more specific. Here is a significant part, the most important part, in fact, of the foundation is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is that stone by which all of the other stones of the building are laid. They are made level according to the standard of the cornerstone. And they all depend upon the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is removed from the building, the building would crumble and collapse in upon itself. The cornerstone then is everything. And there could be no more apt description of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our everything. Without Him, we would crumble in upon ourselves, completely destitute and destroyed. Where does Paul get this idea? So he says here, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Where does Paul get that idea? Well, turn back in your Bibles with me for a moment. Back to Isaiah 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, verse 16. does Isaiah say to us? Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone for a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This is the cornerstone that Paul now rightly interprets to be Jesus Christ himself. What is this foundation that God has laying? What is this stone? This stone that has been tested? The stone that has been made a sure foundation? A precious cornerstone? It's no one other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who was tested. Without defect or disfigurement. He is the precious stone. None more precious or cherished. No other stone could be more highly prized, so deserving of such exaltation, a sure foundation, immovable, rock-solid, dependable, trustworthy, and true. This is the glorious description of our Savior, Jesus Christ. With such an amazing Savior, what is our appropriate response? What does it say? Believe. Believe in Him. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Whoever believes in him will not be, what does it say here in Isaiah? Will not be in haste. Are you in haste in your life? Are you frantic, frazzled, scurrying about from this thing to that thing? Here's those who are in haste in this life. Those who are trying to secure their salvation apart from Jesus Christ. They are trying to work their way up to God. They are trying to clean up their lives before God. They are trying to make themselves more acceptable in the sight of God. There's no assurance of salvation when one is in haste. And haste only intensifies as one lives their life because the day of death is drawing near. And then those questions will come to the forefront. Have I done enough? Have I earned enough? Have I pleased God enough? Where does this life end? Well, turn with me now to 1 Peter First Peter chapter 2 First Peter chapter 2 verse 6 For it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A life of haste, scurrying about, trying to secure your own salvation, trying to remove your own shame, will only leave you in shame. But, believing in Jesus Christ, believing in the one who bore your shame, will remove your shame from you. So that you can stand before God as one justified, How is it that believing in Jesus, you will not be put to shame? Because Jesus bore your shame. That's what what Dan read for us this morning. The stone that the builders rejected. The stone that was thrown away. The throne that no man acknowledged to be the cornerstone The stone that was put to shame, the stone that was crucified on a cross, the stone that was subjected to the worst humiliation possible before mankind, that is the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you want to know? Who looks upon that cornerstone that was despised and rejected by men and says, That stone is glorious? Those who have had their shame removed. This is the day, the day of salvation that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Are you walking around with shame? The things in your life you've done you wish you hadn't done. Words you said. Actions you took. What's going to take your shame away? Only Jesus. Stop living your life in haste, it's never going to work. Only Jesus. Can take away your your sin. That's assurance. That's security of salvation. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine! heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. As God's building, we have the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ Himself being our cornerstone, which brings two great results with it. Here back now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, which, as we read these, they say the same thing, but they say it in slightly a different way, which highlights some differences. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's take these two verses in turn. Verse 21 first. And this brings us to the first result. Result number one. Joined together we grow as those sanctified to the Sovereign Lord. Joined together we grow as those sanctified to the Sovereign Lord. And so here is what it's saying. In whom, or we could also say in Him, that's in Christ, the whole church is joined together. That is, it's unified. It's being joined together. And now I'm going to throw something a little technical at you, but hang with me. This idea of being joined together is what's called a present passive participle. Which means it's a, a continuous action that's being done. So this, this joining together is ongoing. It's a continuous action happening all the time. That's the present part of it. But then it's present passive. Which means that we aren't the ones doing the action. Someone else is doing the action for us so this join together is going on in continuous action all the time but guess what we're not the ones that are doing the joining together someone else is doing the join together and guess who that is Jesus Christ he is the one who joins us together it's not by our own willpower or initiative to join ourselves together it's not that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we say we're just gonna join ourselves together guess what happens When we, as God's people, say we're just going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and join ourselves together, that's when we're destined to fall apart. That's when we're destined to unjoin ourselves from one another. What Christ joins together, though, will never break apart. If Christ joins us together, what can separate us from one another? What happens when Christ then joins us together? We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Here, we are explicitly, as God's building, called a holy temple. What's sacred to us? What's sacred to you? In fact, this week, by your attitudes and actions, what did you show to be sacred to yourself? Sacred as in, It's really meaningful, it's really holy. What is sacred to us as God's people, as Christ's church, is not an external structure. It's not a physical building. It's a people. The coming together of God's people... The unifying of God's people for the express purpose of worship and praise to our God is what is sacred to us. God is not tied up to holy buildings, external buildings, physical structures. God is not tied up to holy buildings, but God is tied up to holy people. (laughs) Those who are sanctified, set apart, fully devoted to Him, fully devoted to following the sovereign Lord. If we focus more on holy structures than on being holy people, we do not value what God values. It's easy to focus on external things. Those are comfortable. Those don't hold me accountable to any standard. Or require any change. But Jesus here is the King of the church. Holy people will follow and obey the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, who will require our change, who will hold us accountable, who we know life will not always be comfortable underneath his Lordship, but it's for our good, it's for our discipline, it's for our own growth and sanctification. The problem is, we as the people of God, maybe we can relate with the scandal of the Jewish people all too well, the scandal of those who claim the name of Christ, but whose lives are far from holy. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I love this. This is great. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawless, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Answers, none. <laughs> what accord has Christ with Bilal? Again, none. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For we are the temple of the living God. We, the church, the people of God, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean things. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you hear what Paul says there? You are the temple of the living God. So then, be holy as God is holy. Result number two. Built together, we live in step with the indwelling spirit. Built together, we live in step with the indwelling spirit. So, now back to Ephesians 2.22. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, built together by Christ. He's doing the work. Same idea of a present passive participle. Into what? Into a dwelling place for God. The indwelling of the Spirit shows that we are The temple. The temple is the place where the presence of God was said to dwell. Now the presence of God by the indwelling spirit resides in believers and in the church. This points to the whole goal of redemptive history. To get to the place where God again dwells with mankind in perfect peace and harmony and fellowship. It was lost when Adam sinned against God, but it's regained through the perfect obedience and sacrifice of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And if we, the church, are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, it means that we are those who must keep in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Oftentimes, when we talk about this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we think of it on very personal terms. And that's true. As a believer, as a Christian, we are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. The very presence of God dwells within us personally. But as we see here in these verses, the Spirit also dwells in us corporately. We Together, as God's people, the Spirit dwells within us. When we come together, it should be a reflection that the Spirit is dwelling in us. Or as Paul might put it, the Spirit is dwelling in y'all. And guess what? If the Spirit is dwelling in you personally there will be a desire to show that indwelling corporately. If the Spirit is indwelling you personally, it doesn't isolate you from the church. It actually wants you to express that within the body of the church. Come together to show that the Spirit is dwelling among you all. You can't live by yourself. You can't be a lone ranger Christian. And isn't that what we also desire? Do you want to know if God is dwelling with us? Do you want to know if God is among us? The church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, in the Spirit. But this points to that great and final reality that we await one day, in glory, this day when God will again dwell with man. Let's just take a look at that as we end. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, What? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then notice the tenderness of our loving Lord. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As we gather together, and as God is dwelling among us by His Spirit, it points and is a foretaste of that day when God and man will once again dwell in perfect, peace and unity and harmony and glory forever and ever, free from this fallen world, only ever to be in the arms of our Lord. We remember that the church is God's building. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for how you care for us and how you teach us and instruct us that we are built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being our cornerstone. And thank you that we could be such a building, such a temple for you. Let us prize our fellowship together. Let us prize what you are doing. Let us prize that you are the one joining together, building together this building, your church. Let us not try to take that over. Let us not think that we can do better. Let us hold fast to our Savior and to the work that He is doing among us. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning. Perhaps it's working in hearts in terms of salvation this morning. That there is someone who realized they've been running around in haste trying to secure their own salvation. Save them today. Father, maybe it's someone else who is a believer but they're burdened by shame. Let them look to the stone that was rejected by men. The one who brings salvation through the cross, through his resurrection, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let us all together say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.